not great on Latour, to be honest with you. I know I've read uh, a long time ago. I read "We Have Never Been Modern," which is kind of his the classic exposition of his philosophy. But he's he's done so much since as well. It's basically me, an idiot, asking you, an expert, on what to explain. But I've you, been I've been you, around with Latour for a long time, so at least I can sketch a little bit about the development of his thought, and especially what it did to me, because that's you know the first question you kind of put on the table for me is what brought me to this. It was not, nothing self-evident about it at all. Oh, there, there are a lot of Dutch scholars who quickly turned on to um, to A&T, and, and probably is the country in Europe that was the first, even before France, to accept Rue de la Tour as, uh, you know, as a speaker of a, of a new generation of science and technology scholars. He wasn't catching on in England at all, where I was at that time. I was at Lancaster University doing my PhD, and Lancaster University had a very strong sociology department, which is basically cut in half by, on the one hand, people more leading towards post-structuralism and, and discourse analysis and stuff like that. On yeah. the other hand, we had the ethnomethodologists. And you would think, as the way that Latour is now being described in the obituaries, that there will be a happy marriage, right? So you have post-structuralism and ethnomethodology, and yeah, they happen to meet in Latour. That's kind of the the take of the last 15 years on his work. But at that time, he gave, he gave a, a public lecture in 1994, and he was invited actually by a program called Independent Studies. And in Independent Studies, Studies, there were at that time figures like Mike Michael, right, um, right, who of course was a an early um, advocate of actin network theory, and but also others like Phil McNaughton, and you know people working in ecological sciences and things like that. It was only later that Elizabeth Shove came, and later than that John Law came. Now, um, so it was that unit that kind of took over from uh, Kiel University, I suppose, as flying the flag for ANT in the UK. Yeah, so actor network theory, that's ANT, so sort the of listeners know, yeah. Yeah, so actor network theory was, and so here here they are, he's Latour in a 1994 public lecture theatre with all these clever five-star RAE sociologists who were flying the flag for theoretical sociology in the UK and getting enormous amounts of international PhD students on scholarships. It was a, it was a hub of intellectual uh, immensity. And there was Latour giving his lecture and he was met by two hostile crowds because the post-structuralists thought that he was selling out to empiricism, to pragmatism, to all these kinds of things that have to do with actually doing research, right? Taking your own observations seriously rather than running with some interesting theoretical concepts. On the other hand, the ethnomethodologists thought that he was selling out to cultural, theoretical obscurity and philosophical nonsense where, you know, especially around the post-human kind of conceptions that were linked to his work in SDS at that time. So that was immediately for me attractive. <laughs> he was hated by almost everybody in the department, must be an interesting guy, right? So that was, uh, but I was myself working in um, kind of attempts to merge Deleuze-Guattarian materialism with Marxist critical theory and uh, it didn't go really well in my PhD thesis. And so in the end, I succumbed, I suppose, to actor network theory because of frequent meetings with Latour. We tend to meet in a bookshop in London or we met uh, at the steps of a conference somewhere. Um, and so from that grew a, a, a more intense discussion culture. We, we had a, a long lunch at Brunel University during a conference there where we were talking about uh, Whitehead. And uh, I hadn't heard of Whitehead, but it, it struck to me the way that he was describing it. This was someone I should read. 
And so I, I got into email conversations about religion and belief and things like that. It grew from there. And it was um, when I was working for uh, Mike Featherstone in his famous theory, culture and society outfit that Mike wanted to do something with this. Right. He was interested in, you know, to get, to get these guys on board. You know, right. That's the way theory, culture and society worked, you know, trying to get the latest thing. Most people know the text uh, we've never been modern most people kind of have a very yeah, like broad me, yeah. idea of it um and i think it's time that we should deepen it a bit and and um uh, try to see latour much less as a critique of modernity but much more as someone who's trying to reconsider reconsider how we look at science as a way in which we look at how we understand reality in general great so conceptually then you talked about how empiricism wasn't satisfying to you the post-structuralist wasn't satisfying to you what conceptually is it you know in actor network theory that you find appealing used it is really simple whatever you do whatever you want to deploy as a mode of analysis always make sure you start with a concrete controversy if there's no concrete controversy what on earth are you spending your time on so it's always that's i tell all my students this all the time always look for a concrete controversy that you cannot simply manipulate as the way sociologists often do then they write about mr a and mrs b they don't exist they don't have lives they can do whatever you want them to do so they don't resist and this is a concept that um, i hope we'll, we'll get to later right when you talk about objectivity what is the core of it well it is that it doesn't always do what you want it to do so it resists and at the moment it resists it becomes interesting for science so this is why science doesn't have time for conspiracy theories because the objects of conspiracy theory never resist right they, they always do what you want them to do yeah well right right well we, we're definitely going to talk about that because um because yeah one of his the later parts because the tour died recently um i think was was it like november was it or december october 22 october 22 yeah and he was his his last work was on ecology and he was very much repudiating conspiracy theories and you know vaccine conspiracies and all of those type of things which is what he's usually accused of isn't it he's usually accused of being a a relativist a relativist exactly in one word yes a relativist a cheap relativist who thinks anything can mean anything and is it the case then and I want to talk about that in more detail. Uh, <laughs> is it the case that he's bringing sort of science to fulfilment, rather, the Enlightenment to fulfilment, rather than repudiating it? Uh, so th- I know that th- you know, there's a whole thing about uh, maybe modernity that you want to talk about. Yeah. I'll leave that, I'll leave that moment for... So let's, let's not talk about Enlightenment, right? That's a word that's too big. That's, but what is he doing with science? Right. In, in the 70s, he got a, score, a, a, a grant to do some research on the Salk laboratories. They were working with um, microbes and stuff like that. So he researched a um, microbiological lab. And he did this with Steve Woolgar, and they were still friends at that time. They're, you know, they're still friends now, but they don't work together because Woolgar definitely stayed in the social constructionist approach. Whereas Latour learned that what you do when you study uh, people working in a laboratory, you have to kind of also pay attention to the, the equipment they work with and to the way they set them up and the way that they they speak about these things. And so it became very clear that you cannot do kind of what the sociology of scientific knowledge were doing at that time, which was the strong program, the the Edinburgh School, David Bloor and, and others. Um, they were saying, well, you need to treat all these statements about, for example, vaccine, pro and contra, uh, as if they all have the same kind of uh, appeal to truth. 
That is, you cannot treat them as some are true and some are false and subject them to different methods. That Latour took and accepted. So it doesn't matter whether you believe something to be true or not. You still have to study it in the right way. But Latour said, well, the only thing you're then really looking at is the product of science, right? The texts that are being produced. And so the entire sociology of scientific knowledge approach to the vaccination debate would be what is Dr. A saying? What is Dr. B saying? And, and all that. Whereas Latour went kind of before the paper got published into laboratories and looked at how do they work? Then how do these statements come into being? What leads? And then you realize it's not at all so relativistic because if you have data saying this amount of whatever bacterial material was found before and after, it's you can't just change it as more or less. You, know, you, you work with what you got. You work with what your equipment has shown. Your equipment is a witness in a way to that which you work with. And it doesn't really, that's the mean, you know, it doesn't really let itself be manipulated that easily. Unless, of course, you deliberately want to manipulate it, which we would define as bad science. So the good science is working with material with equipment, with bacteria, with the risk of it proving you completely wrong and ruining your career. That's good science. Right. Willing to take that risk, you're probably not really good at science either. So there was this debate around vaccinations, around you know whether or not they are uh, they have side effects, and it was all. We can still assume all done in good faith, but um, with material that was contaminated. So mice material was contaminated and that skewed the result. It took a few repeats of that research to really be sure that these were false. And this was a cornerstone of the anti-vax movement uh, for about 10 years ago. Once kind of you let science do its work and you let kind of other people look into the way studies are done, you get a pretty good idea of whether or not the data that you produce actually warrant the conclusions you draw. And so this is, I think, that's the hallmark of Latour's work. It's not at all science hostile, but what it does is instead of constantly focusing on sciences made, the products, the texts, because what's, that's what the sociology of scientific knowledge did, it focuses on science in the making. And in science in the making, it's not non subjective i mean it's not like they all do the same thing of course they don't they make interpretations they add a few too much too many uh, i had a, a phd student of mine looking at the way rabbits were treated in um, nano oncological research yeah you know there's a lot of subjectivity going on whether or not the, the rabbits are treated bad or worse and uh, or good and you know there's a lot of kind of skill involved in that which would be in accordance with what social constructionists would say. People interpret situations and kind of bricolage type uh, solutions, but it doesn't mean that it's all arbitrary. And so this arbitrariness, which is at the heart of the accusations of social constructionism, don't work at the moment. You take your technology, your media, your material, your non-human witnesses seriously. And so um, I would still consider it constructionist, in the sense that it really focuses on the way in which evidence is constructed, but it's not constructed at will. And it's certainly not uh, an epiphenomenon of our desires for it to be like that, that you're not a good scientist. So, uh, and, and that's what kind of pissed social constructionists off. Right. That they wanted kind of to say, no, it's all humans that do it, right? From Fleck on to Collins and, and Yearly and whatever. And it doesn't work very well with the diehard naturalist scientists either, because they also don't want to talk about the construction part, because that's kind of the technology of it, which their their assistants do kind of thing. Well, this is part of the controversy that that, I think it was a laboratory life, was it? Uh, yeah. It was called, yeah. So scientists were 
quite irate by Latour's rendering of them because he was doing an anthropological study of scientists in the wild, so to speak. So all of a sudden, that's quite disruptive of the idea that science is... Um, the big picture we have of science, the Enlightenment idea of science is, you know, it's sort of basic incremental progress and, you know, there's empirical testing and uh, it's all very cautious and prudent and all that. But all of a sudden, the idea that scientists in the lab were, you know, test cases, I suppose. I, I guess is the idea that it was making explicit that science is not absolutely disinterested. That's not absolutely neutral. The sociologists knew this already, right? Because, you know, you know about grant applications. And um, I think what the scientists who collaborated in the laboratory life project, because they let themselves be studied, they were actually quite interested in the things they had taken for granted. So, of course, not everybody is interested in having an ethnographer in their bedroom or in their kitchen, right? That's kind of disruptive yeah. anyway. So, yeah, I can't say I'd like it, no. <laughs> no, I've done the same in, in the BBC newsroom in, in Nottingham. I mean, you're kind of a pest a bit. You're sitting there at someone's desk looking at them as if they're, nobody likes to be observed. And like. the observation effect, yeah, so it affects the activity then. Yeah, but in more recently, I mean, I know this from, from the, our own projects. Uh, for example, this, the, uh, the co colleague who worked in the nano-oncological labs, um, she was very welcome because they also understand that there is kind of a public function to science. And this is something that may have come out of the science wars as well, and especially when science since science has become itself so politicized. So all of a sudden, for example, climate science has a great interest now in showing journalists and politicians and even Ivana Trump or Ivanka Trump um, how they work, right? So Ivanka Trump was invited to visit this great climate science lab right. in Hamburg. Yeah, I heard this. Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, so... You know, this is how we work. This is how what we do. And uh, so I, I would not characterize science as being hostile to being investigated. What they're hostile to is being interpreted. So and especially interpreted regardless of what they do. So if we go like Bourdieu did, for example, and go and talk about scientists as, you know, they're primarily motivated by political interests or financial interests or career interests or whatever, then you're not understanding science. It's the same as a priest is primarily motivated or by pedophile interest. It's kind of, you know, it's a gross exaggeration and it covers, you know, very few people, right? So science is interested. Science is the interest in a particular way of finding truth and establishing truth claims that can be defended with objects, right? That's roughly the case. Now, politicians are not interested in that. Neither are religious preachers. Right? They're not interested in proving their point. Neither are artists. Right. In that sense, that's what makes science scientists as an epistemological practice, an epistemic practice unique. This is also how I, I look at philosophy. Right. Not every work of philosophy has to be work of science. But if you want to engage with philosophy scientifically, that's what you're bound to. That's why the empirical is important, because without yeah. the empirical, it's it's not that anymore. It doesn't have these kinds of functions. Yeah, so it's like Latour then is his, his philosophy, his actor network theory, and we'll talk about that in a bit more discussion now, I think. But uh, he's he's trying to show the broader context, the genesis, the history of science. He's trying to provide a language which enables us place science within its environment, I guess. And science is able to recognize itself, right? So this is what this is what the so-called incident or so-called so yeah, yeah, the, controversy the hopes, yeah. missed. Right. So Carl did, I think, a very interesting experiment. Right. You 
for, for people who didn't know, um, you write a text that's full of nonsense, but has kind of elements of truth in there. So a superficial reading of a non-expert wouldn't be able to see it's a hoax. He sent that to a journal, Social Text. It was sent for review. One of the reviews actually criticized it and said, you know, things have to be changed because they recognized that some things were dodgy. He did half-hearted changes. It was acting in bad faith. So that's kind of a weird experiment, right? That's in bad faith. Right. And he got it published. And then at the same time it was published, he also published an article in, I believe it was Nature, where he denounced what he, uh, this, this journal and exposed what he did. And this became the, the scandal that people who are not scientists and studying science do not know what they're talking about. And then he, with Brickmore, he then wrote a book, Intellectual Imposters, where he basically did the opposite, right? Not an experiment, not nothing to do with science, but he attacked all the French, right? From Derrida to Bourdieu to Latour himself. Foucault, and, yeah, yeah. And they defended, those who were still alive then, uh, defended themselves. And Latour's defense was, was I didn't think, was very convincing. But he said, basically, he got me completely wrong. That's what they all say, right? <laughs> I take science very seriously. And I, uh, you know, would like to be respected by scientists, not because I bow to them but the way i redescribe them ethnographically is actually something they can recognize themselves at which is what all ethnographers do i suppose right so if paul willis does research with working class boys in the 1970s and he goes back to them and he says do you recognize yourself in this and they say well it's all bull crap right he did a bad ethnography in a way right so it's the same rules for say for everybody yeah in latour you get this i suppose it's He's, he's quite sort of, he's got a kind of a libertarian streak. He doesn't like disciplines to be sort of embedded within themselves. He wants to make sort of different disciplines talk to each other. I was going to talk to you that he's a very unusual philosopher, but I'm not sure he would even be happy with that phrase. Or would he really even call him a sociologist? Or he's, he's operating a sub kind of intersection between both. So maybe I thought that might be a good place to talk about his most famous book. I guess this is his most famous book is We Have Never Been Modern. And that book, right, is, is probably the one that, as you said, that non-Laturians would have an idea of. Like, I've read it many years ago. And it's very, very, it's very, it's very, it's quite short. It's got a bit of a sort of a polemical edge to it, I think. And it's very impactful. I would recommend people read it. It's sort of very, quite seductive and compelling, if I recall. Yeah, which is good, right? Which is good. It you was know? in a time, it was in a time that so many people were talking about this, right? I think it was published in, in French in 1991, in English in 1993 or something right. like that. Yeah. So, what was going on at that time? It was called postmodernism. I don't know if you're old enough, Patrick, to remember postmodernism. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was a big hype in the late 80s and early 90s, and, and everybody was talking about it. Now, this is a problem. I suppose when everybody's talking about it, it must be something wrong. Um, and so what we see when, when we look at, and the way that Latour describes the term modern, we see it covers a lot of ground. Yeah. Well, what does he mean by that? Yeah. Yeah, we see on one hand, there is a lot of talk about modern when you look at Beck or Giddens or uh, Scott Lash or whatever, right? They talk about the modern as being, you know, Le Corbusier top type stuff, ordering, everything has its place, everything in a box, right? It's it's the modern of, of categories, of causal explanations. It's the modern that kind of wants to impose the uh, dominion of man over everything else, right? It's kind of... Uh, also been in Foucault, of course, disciplinary power. It's it's that's the modern. It's the modern of God is dead and we're going to do a better job. Modern. Right. Now, that's one modern. 
there is another modern, which is the modern of perpetual revolution, innovation, reinvention, paradigm shifts, uh, uh, falsifications and um, uh, uh, controversies and discussions and progress through struggle and, and emancipation. So it's the modern that can never accept that which is and always works on behalf of that which could be. Now, that's a very different modern. So which if you say, well, we've been modern or we are modern, which one? Right. And then, of course, the Hegelians would say oh, both, yeah, both. And then so um, uh, they work together. But, you know, there's a very different modern feel to Foucault's description compared to Virilio's description. Yet at the same, so the video is about destruction, war, and things like that, and um, and both apply at the same time, and they both characterize with one word because it's somehow post enlightenment. And what I think is most interesting when we look at this is to think of Comte and uh, his his description of his own era as the post metaphysical era, which Habermas happily took over, right? So we live in post metaphysical times. Well, we actually don't. That's the and that's so. If you want to say we've never been modern, we've never been post-metaphysical, that perfectly works. Yeah, so is, would you would you say Latour is a metaphysician then? Would you think that's a fair claim? Gray yeah. Harman would say he's still a metaphysician. Now, Latour would say no. Um, we have never been modern, nor will we ever be modern, and the whole concept throws us off the work that we really should be doing. So we should acknowledge both kind of elements of practice, right? The practice of ordering and the practice of disordering. Is that German? That's Hegel, isn't it? Verstand und Vernunft. Yeah, but, you know, both should be acknowledged. So in that sense, you know, it's not different from Hegel. The only thing is, the only difference is it's not going anywhere, right? So there is no teleological element in it. And that's what made Latour, that book, associated with uh, the postman. This is how Beck and Giddens kind of got onto Latour and said, you know, but you're then a postmodernist because you're saying basically, you know, you're taking this nihilistic account. It's not going anywhere. It will not be going anywhere. Give up hope. Now, that's not what Latour said. He said, basically, we need to stop thinking in these huge metaphor- metaphysical categories because they distract us from the real work we could be doing instead of doing this constant panoramic descriptive diagnostic activity of social science, social theory, political theory, or philosophy, we should be doing oligoptic work, small things. We should look and think, this is back to the empirical, think through the empirical. So start with a concrete controversy. Why? Because then you can still bolt on things if they are actually traces leading there, which, for example, I suppose if you go to the Centre Pompidou in Paris, you would get quite quickly traces to Baudrillard or whatever and his sort of apocalyptic accounts. Yeah, then they work, but they don't always work. Right. And so and this is I think it's a very good method to to take, for example, when you look at the vaccination debate, because anti-vax has been part of the modern using very similar techniques right. yeah. as the vax truth seekers yeah all truth seekers and they all uh, provide evidence to their assertions we can of course qualify whether this evidence is good or not but it's not like they're relativists it's not like they say anything goes it's not like they simply say you know everything is a social construction you can believe whatever you like no, they say, no, we've got evidence, it's dangerous. You get autism or 
you know, you die, you get a chip implanted in you, right? And then, of course, we're looking for the chips. But, you know, as, as long as they haven't produced them, but they're so small, apparently you can't see them. Uh, but the, the point is, they are not relativists. So the relativists mm. are really cynical, opportunistic politicians who don't believe in anything. And they, you know, they are quite dominant at the moment. So, you know, most of the countries we live in are populated by politicians who are really relative, but they are not they are not the people that they want to vote for them. So they cannot present themselves as relativists. They have to kind of align with something. Thanks. That's really helpful. Uh, situating it like that, Joost. I think one of the things that he does, uh, this is why probably the post-structuralists like him, Latour tries to collapse the nature-culture dichotomy. Isn't that right? And we have been modern. That's one of the things I remember about it. And it's like, this is this is a false binary. You know, he doesn't have to be Derrida to say that either. Like, you know, he's doing it in his own distinctive way. So he's criticising the distinction between nature and culture, between nature and society, I guess between nature and nurture as well. And he's trying to show that our that our science emphasises these sort of radical, these, these radical distinctions. Is that right? Would that be a fair account of... Patrick, not entirely. Okay, good. <laughs> what is the problem? So, first of all, the nature-culture bifurcation problem is not a new one. So, White had called it explicitly bifurcation, but it, but you can also see it in uh, even in Descartes. Right, right. So that material uh, dualism, yeah, yeah, the gland that resolves the dichotomy, kind of thing, and the pineal gland, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. So, Spinoza had a field day with with that as well, and so it is maybe maybe of the bit of laziness that we followed blindly followed Kant's kind of claim that he solved everything uh, and then we left it. Um, but you can take it as the way the philosophers would do as a philosophical conundrum, right? Something that uh, you either have to subscribe to kind of a, a doubling of the universe with on the one hand, everything that God created and on the other hand, man, Right. And again, the, the, the world of ideas, a bit of a platonic kind of problem. But this is not how Latour works it. Latour doesn't work it from the primarily from the logical inconsistency. He works from it from the empirical impossibility. Right. There is no empirical. And here is the language of, of Whitehead is very good, much better than the language of Latour himself. Whitehead talks about actual occasion. Right. So a phenomenology would say phenomenon. Right. But actual occasion is has this process element to it. And so if something happens. Right. An occasion. I or a, a Husserl sitting in his library, seeing his desk or something like that. Right. It's an actual occasion. And this actual occasion, if you start putting in a priori distinction between the natural elements and the non-natural elements because this is the thing with all these dichotomies it's always a natural and something that's not natural technology culture society whatever human and so forget about dichotomies because you can't identify these elements you can only identify kind of uh, the substantial unity you could say of the actual occasion and it's only it's only Pertinent if it somehow resists something. So if I play a computer game and I can walk through a wall with my avatar, this wall isn't real, right? It doesn't isn't an object. But thankfully, a lot of these computer games make me walk through a door. So I can't walk through a wall. I have to find a door. That means it's kind of creating an object for me to engage with, right? And that's resistance. So it kind of stops the kind of fluid fluidity of of fantasy and and all that and kind of starts to bring structure in it no you cannot walk through a wall unless you're a ghost right you go through a door 
right? And that's kind of, it's a structuring thing. And it's all about interaction. So it's it kind of, it's the, the object presents itself as a, as, an, as a point of resistance. Now, in that point of resistance, there is no real gain to be made from identifying natural and non-natural elements at all. And this is, again, Latour is not the first to say this. Moscovici has said it as well. You know, name me a thing uh, that is not somehow also material or whatever, or, you know, the material ideal distinction. So let's stop that. Not because we, I priori, want to insist there is never a point in making those distinctions, but don't make them a priori, please. Right? It doesn't help us. And so, and, and so the discussions around A&T in the late 80s and early 90s was all about that. Right? Do you believe in a fundamental separation of human and non-human or are you going to take and this is latour of course a pragmatic stance that it doesn't really help us very much to make that an a priori kind of uh, credo uh, a, a declaration of faith and so the, i know that you're interested in atheism and so it's a very well i would say latour is is it was a very devout catholic in many ways but he would never make his catholicism the basis of his intellectual endeavors he would and i do the same uh, so i would never make my catholicism there's a i work at a catholic university um i would never make it the basis of anything i would rather do the opposite right i want to work with the hypothesis that god does not exist uh, so that i do not have to kind of encounter him as a fiction um or as, as a fabrication of my own imagination so to speak yeah so that might be a good place to move on to the other idea then because um, you talked about God there, but one of the things that Latour Connolly, his actor network theory, talks about is, and maybe you could explain it to me, is this idea of hybrid phenomena, uh, hybrid phenomenon, or hybrid phenomena. Could you give examples of of of, of what a hybrid phenomenon is for for Latour? To be completely honest, I would be it would be impossible for me to say what is a non-hybrid phenomenon, right? So a hybrid phenomenon emerges from the idea that nothing is essentially reducible to anything else. Right. So that means if you if you can find an, an actual occasion that is only produced by another actual occasion, it becomes kind of obsolete. So I think it's the hybrid hybridity comes from the fact that whatever is an actual occasion, it never has one cause. It always kind of and that's why he doesn't want to talk about causality. He says action has always been overtaken. That is everything that we encounter as an actual occasion has so many lineages going into it, like um, who sells desk, right? It was also made somewhere from wood, from some forest and whatever. And all these lineages may not be relevant at the moment that Husserl wants to use the desk as a as a starting point for phenomenology. That's great, right? But um, you don't want to reduce the desk to his deskness, right? It's only an actual occasion and you only stop kind of talking about the lineages that made this desk an actual occasion because you want to go somewhere else. So if you say hybrid object or hybrid phenomenon, you, what you really do is you acknowledge the multiplicity of relationships that made this actual occasion possible, right? So you're, so it's a non-essentialist. I would take it as a non-essentialist kind of standpoint, right? And, um, um, and because it comes from the principle of irreducibility, which he explains in Pasteurization of France, there's a whole second half to it. It's called irreductions. 
and it's all kinds of axiomatic, I would almost call them Nietzschean statements of um, um, he works without having worked them out. So he hasn't done the full philosophy. He just kind of made them there as statements of his at the state of his mind at that time. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously for the, from the philosophical point of view, all what you're saying, it's just uh, the question. I have to ask the metaphysical question. You know, you talk about the occasion, occasionalism, even uh, the idea of individuation comes to my mind. And just for the listeners, what I'm talking about then is like we can say that a hyper phenomenon is any particular object. So this desk, that car, that cup, this, that smartphone, this microphone, whatever. But, you know, the, philosoph- the philosophical question, the old Aristotelian question then is, you know, what makes it what it is? What makes it hold? What makes it a particular object at a particular point in time uh, that sustains itself over time? Yeah, that's the associations, right? So that's kind of how it's associated. So I was thinking about the example of ether, right? That was certainly a thing in the 19th century. Yeah. The ether was, you know, where diseases... Uh, All kinds of things happened there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's lost its kind of hold, but it's been replaced with gases, you know, and it's been replaced with viruses. So part of the unhealthy parts of ether now have um, a pathogen attached to it. It's called a virus. And so it has evolved. And I, I like this idea of individuation because you, when you look at Simondon, right, you can see exactly why at the same time the crystallization is also a hybrid, right? It's not, it's, it's individuated, but not in its essence. It's individuated because it's kind of the point at which it's come. Right, it's arrived, and it's not its fulfillment. It's just where it stops, or and of course in a moment because they dissolve and then go somewhere else again. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, one of the other things that we have, I wanted to talk to you about the Parliament of Things, but uh, I, I, I want to get onto other stuff as well. Um, uh, I knew this would happen; we wouldn't probably have enough time. But uh, yeah, so there is a sense which we have never been modern that. Latour objects to human exceptionalism, and that's why he's probably an influence on what we call post-humanism, that the idea that we should place the human at the centre of the world, rather what actor, actor network theory is about, his own theory that he developed, is about, well, how the human is part of a network or a part of a context, a part of a set of modes, yeah. So is, is that right? Is, is that, is, he wants to... He wants to undermine human. <laughs> he wants to tell humans that we're not special, basically. And, um, yeah, that's how the philosophers taken it, right? It's. I think it's slightly different. So human exceptionalism is a logical problem. Uh, so because for me and maybe for Latour as well, the logical problem is, OK, so I want to think empirically. How do I get to human exceptionalism? empirically right it's is it because a human walks on two legs or uses hands or uses Very language clever, yeah. yeah whatever and and then this you know this work of of um uh, tomasello uh, right with the monkeys and then they discover that monkeys can do lots of things as well they can teach human language to their babies and so so evolution is a problem for these kinds of statements because you know anything can evolve so and and i have a lot of these discussions in germany so the German sociologists in particular, they want to hold on to human exceptionalism because they feel it's the basis of social science. Is we This is Weber, right? We work with humans. Humans are reactive entities. We cannot study them in the way that scientists study their cells and their molecules and their matters and, and their substances, right? So humans are different. But there are two ways they can be different. And one, they don't want to acknowledge, but I think they have to. The second one is evolutionism. So, but that's an empirical issue because then the question is that Nietzsche said at, at the beginning of um, On Truth and Lies in a Non-Moral Sense, he said, once upon a time, there was a clever beast that invented knowledge, right? 
an empiricist would want to know what time, <laughs> right? <laughs> what weight? <laughs> and what is the what is the leap there? What is the leap of knowing? And of course, for Hegelians and and Christians alike, it's kind of the development of consciousness. And but consciousness development as a empirical, evolutionary, biological phenomenon or occasion is extremely difficult. And but I can do this empirically. So I, this is what I tell students: How often are you conscious? And then you discover it. Whatever you think of consciousness, it's very limited. <laughs> and so I said, if it's so limited, why would we use it as the starting point of human exceptionalism? And the second problem is, uh, can we be sure that a, a tick or a spider doesn't have consciousness? And so we can't be sure, of course, because we can't interact with them properly. Uh, so we don't. So I would I would be saying it doesn't really matter whether or not we believe that humans have consciousness, we cannot use it in empirical studies anyway. So let's not do this. And But the second one, or the first one, I should say, the second one is the evolutionary thing. It doesn't really work empirically. The first one is, well, you must believe in God then. Because the only way you can do this than say humans are special is because they're made in the image and likeness of God. So you have studies of creator and his minions and studies of the created. <laughs> And and that's how Christians do it, right? So this is their, this is why climate change isn't really a problem because God will save His favorite beings who right. get, get a spaceship out or something like that. So and that's of course you can see that my colleagues in sociology they don't want to admit that they believe in human exceptionalism because they believe in God, and so they they tend to abandon it. And so I just let's turn it empirically. Do we really need it for empirical analyses? Do we really need it to understand anything in this world? And then, no, you don't really need it to understand anything in this world. So it becomes like the Occam razor. You then cut it out because it's a, it's a hindrance to knowledge. It's a hindrance to understanding. It doesn't help us. Now, there are people who take it more radically than that because I would say I would limit this to science. I would say so for scientific questions, human exceptionalism isn't really a big thing. However, if I think of law, especially human rights, right? Now, of course, I could say human rights are very important and animal rights are very important. I totally agree. But what I would not want to say is, oh, well, humans are nothing except exceptional. We can treat them like animals. That's kind of the, I would say, the Orban or Putin approach to... Yes, for, for basic fascism, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so let's not do that. So I want to limit it to just scientific questions. As soon as we go to other epistemic practices, be they pol political, religious, ideological, or artistic, that's a different matter. And Latour, I think, is also pragmatic and said the same thing. Now, others may want to pursue it in philosophy. They want to go philosophically into questions whether or not humans are exceptional or not. Now, that's, for me, an open debate. I would not pull Latour in there, because I don't think he's made very strong statements in that direction, but it's certainly the direction that people like Graham Harmon are going into. And that's fine. I don't think it's very dangerous. I would consider it more dangerous when this enters into the political field. Yeah, yeah, I think I would, I would, uh, yeah, I mean, Graham Harmon has been on the podcast a while back, or I've had him on a couple of times, and uh, I guess he's got his version of speculative realism, and I'm probably ventriloquating him here, I hope I do it right, but he would sort of see the Latourian political idea as valuable because it undermines well, basic sort of reductive classifications, I suppose, you know, left and right and things like that. And we need to kind of transcend that in order to well, sort of liberate ourselves from, from our be, 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 be being enthralled to those very distinctions, which creates pernicious hierarchies between 
human and human and human and animal and human and, and, and thing and human environment. Yeah. yeah, think of the fungi, right? Without the fungi, trees would not be able to extract uh, minerals from the soil. Without trees, we don't have oxygen. So we better take care of our fungi. But one of the things that... Um, and just in terms of the sort of actor network theory core concepts, we talked about the parliament of, we haven't talked about the parliament of things, but I guess that's kind of the network of objects and what is an object. We have talked about that. Do you think there's a panpsychism in his in his work? I don't, you know, I, I don't think he's sort of saying that, is he? That he's literally saying that objects have agency or intelligence or they have a diminished form of intelligence. Would that be a way of putting it? Do you, do you follow so me? Agency is a problematic term because first of all, it's a lie. Because the word we use, well, lie, it's a problem because we say agency to, we in sociology, I don't know you in philosophy, but we in sociology tend to use agency as kind of a, a cover up for free will. Same in philosophy. Yeah. He is, is an entity that can act on free will. And so we assume that only humans can do that, but actually not all humans, only certain humans can do this because slaves and, you know, until recently women and children could not do that, right? As, uh, women could not be raped in marriage until 1995 in Germany. So that's quite the technicality. <laughs> yeah. So free will, you know, it's a limited kind of thing. So let's not let's not go there. But agency, when you look at the word agent, it's kind of acting on someone else's behalf. Right. So sociologists also use agency to talk about people who act in the name of institutions. Right. Who fulfill roles and who meet role expectations and things like that. So it's been used in another, you know, I would say in a, in a contradictory manner. And and for me, the point is that the very definition of object as that which can object, which you can also translate into that which can affirm an actual occasion in its duration. So it makes an actual occasion last, right, is kind of what we call object because it stands in the way, from uh, up against, and yaktare, it is thrown against. And at that moment, all objects, by definition, have what people call agency. Because this is Graham too, uh, Harmon's stuff on the tool mm. nature of objects. They all, it, secondly, they always also imply possibilities, of use, for example, possibilities of enablement that can be different. So that's the tool nature. It also brings in the subject because that's, for me, what subject means. The ability to act on options. That is, it's a multiplicity of possibilities that are offered. Otherwise, we don't talk about subjectivity. So objectivity, subjectivity, both have a lot to do with acting. Right. So, yes. So this is the word. This is the big word that he does then. Th th thank you. That's really good, useful, yours, because he sees objects and things and uh, networks. He sees them as, well, he sees, I suppose, us as one example, uh, as co-producers. Uh, and the word is, is actant, actant, isn't it? Yeah. It's actor network theory, right. And the way it's been received, actant, is as its models between non-human and human, right? This is like the shorthand. I would not do that. I would say actant reminds us of the fact that nothing ever acts on its own, right? So this is the NRA uh, Republican Party debate around guns, right? Guns don't kill people do. Well, if, a, if you're a true social constructionist, you would just replace that sentence with plastic forks don't kill people do. Now, it so happened, of course, in 9-11 uh, that cockpits were taken over by plastic knives and forks. But that's beside the point. The point is that a human without a gun is much less likely to kill someone else. Right. Not because uh, the gun makes him kill someone, because the gun enables him to kill someone. So this is probably what you mean by by co 
co-authorship of, of an act, right? Is it mm. tends to be this hybridity of, of associations that strengthen the ability to act. And, and that's also the options, of course. If I have a gun, I have the option to kill someone or not kill someone. If I don't have a gun, I still have the option, but the way to do it is very cumbersome and likely to fail. And so you can see the options are very different with or without gun. That's quite Nietzschean, isn't it? It's just, just, just as you were talking there, you said sounds Nietzschean, you know, because it's like it strengthens the ability. It gives the ability, it gives the, uh, the object the power to accomplish something. Yeah, the will to power. And, and so irreductions, the second part of the pastorization of France in the English version, uh, is very Nietzschean. If you read that, you realize, oh, there is a lot of Nietzsche in Latour, although he never really acknowledges, he never really acknowledges much in terms of his heritage. But Nietzsche is certainly one of them. Spinoza is another. And Deleuze is a very big one. Right. The reason I of converted course. to ANT was actually because I realized uh, Latour knew Deleuze extremely well. I read him very well. And he's actually, um, Latour is the one who introduced Tart to us, reintroduced Tart into sociology, so to speak, because of Deleuze. Because Deleuze in repetition and difference worked very hard with uh, Tart. One thing I want you to help me with is the black box. And then I just want to go into his more his more recent contributions on ecology and stuff like that and uh, how that feeds into new materialism. This idea of the black box. Now, I don't, you know, the black box, I have a very rudimentary understanding, right? When I hear of black box, I think it's a thing of the aeroplane that's coloured orange, which, which has all the flight data, which can help uh, people in terms of an unfortunate accident or if they're, the plane is shot down or something like that. So could you perhaps speak to that or put a bit of color on Latour's concept of the black box? Yeah, it's 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 somehow relates to what happens in a plane when it doesn't crash kind of thing. Uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, nobody talks about a black box until a plane crashes. So the plane crash makes the black box visible. And it's the same in a way with um, the black box in a, I would say, more metaphorical use that Latour does. It's all those aspects that are important for a network to kind of hold itself together without having to question why. So in the way that, in, and it's an early work by Michel Calon when he writes about cam, uh, uh, scallops, right? The, the, or the obligatory passage point at that, and that study was, we need to convince everybody right. that uh, to use particular beddings for the growth of scallops. Because, you know, scallops are reduced in number and nobody benefits from them. The scallops don't benefit from them, but the fisher don't benefit from them. And the scientists wanted to know, can we introduce a, a technique from Japan into France uh, by which we can cultivate these scallops? This was an early kind of techno-scientific endeavor to uh, control your seafood production. It failed, but the idea was you can only establish this kind of research project if all actors say yes. And so the scientific community had to say yes because it is funded. The fishermen had to say yes because you don't want them to fish in your in your research area. And the scallops had to say yes because they have to grow there, right? So and the obligatory passage point is then no longer put into question when the project is going on. Everybody said yes. We haven't gone through that. We're not putting that into discussion. So the black box is to secure certain parts of the network from being questioned, being called into question. And this is what the scientists thought when they were working on climate change. They thought that by their authority as scientists and their graphs and tables and what they made explicit, it was obvious for politicians, that, you know, obvious for, for the electorate, obvious for industrialists, obvious what we should be doing. 
And that's kind of, and it turned out that the science of climate science could no longer hold its black box status. And this is, you know, what we talked about a bit earlier. So an exceptional status then. Yeah, they had to invite people in to, they do videos now on how climate science works, how computer modeling happens, how you get these kinds of um, very complicated algorithms that have to do that adjust according to the, the data input and data output. So the black box of algorithm, algorithmic um, predictions of the consequence of climate change has been opened up, so to speak, and it's good. So black boxes are not, you know, keeping black boxes black boxes is not always a good thing because, you know, you can you can lose people in the in the alliances that you really need. Right, and isn't this Latour's thing with science? As I read him, uh, he's not rejecting science, only, I suppose, hegemonic science or hegemonic iterations of science. Is that right? Yeah, he, would, he would attack the way in which certain scientists or representatives of the scientific community, some of the Royal Society type of display of science with a big S, a capital S, as the scientific method. Science says, trust me, I'm a scientist. That kind of authoritarian science that only talks about science is made, but doesn't let anybody into their black boxes, he would consider that a dangerous strategy. And he's proven that to be right surrounding climate change, right? I mean, I suppose we see we see an example of it in the United States with examples of the, you know, the vaccines and stuff like that, but, you know, mass or non-mass and people go, well, we started off saying this, now we're saying this. And uh, I suppose it's a question of rhetoric, it's a question of communication. And the thought is that it's not communicated well enough. <laughs> Biggest mistake, I think, in the entire COVID vaccination thing was that they believed when we say take the vaccination, you can't get ill. That was the biggest mistake. This was kind of black boxing because, of course, it was hard work as an immunologist to say, you know, you can still done, get yeah. ill. And, um, and you know, it's a negotiation between your body and the pathogens and, and all that. That's less of a selling point, isn't it? The, the cure. We have the cure is much more better. <laughs> Cheap sale, the hard sale thing. Ah. And uh, people got ill. And so this added on to doubts. Um, and it's, again, si this is what Latour says, a science that presents itself as the producer of facts will fall on its face yeah. over and over again. So again, and this is important, Joost, I think, from your perspective, he's not disputing that facts exist. He's just existing the production of facts. Or how, or being, he's asking us to be more mindful of how facts are constructed socially. Factum, I have made. Of course, of course. Yes, yes, I forgot. Yes, the Latin. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's it's not it's not far from from our culture at all that to think of you know instead of the, the already accomplished, you think about how do we accomplish this? And so this is the problem a bit with Greta Thunberg, right? She talks about the facts, the facts, the facts, but it becomes a fact war. Where you say I believe her, or I think she's mad, and you know that's a very bad position to be in if you're into science. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, oh gosh, I would like to do another podcast with you on Greta Thunberg. But uh, one of her things is that, uh, and I, I, I kind of hand it to her. Like, uh, she's got, uh, she's got uh, what's the word? She got hotspur skill and courage and all that, and and she's charismatic. Uh, well, to most people, I think. But the point is that she's she. Her, a lot of her rhetoric, at least, is based on an appeal to the indisputability of the science without 
which is your point, I guess, without acknowledging the genesis of that science. Is that right? Exactly, and that makes that makes her standpoint a religious one. And I don't want there is no for me no skepticism regarding climate change science at all. But as as soon as you take a religious point that um, it's you know it exists and it doesn't matter if you believe in it or not, um, I still think you you need to continue to show us why it is indisputable that it exists. And and okay, she's doing that as well. She's referring to a lot of scientific work, but that gets lost usually in the sound bites, right? So uh, I'd like to hopefully talk about then about sort of what he has to say. Uh, and in his, his latter work, um, I can put a link on the show notes to people. Uh, he did a, he, he, had, he had a book on ecology, which came out, I think it was probably his last work. And in that he was in dialogue with James Lovelock of the famous Gaia principle, who also died recently, in fact. Uh, I think it was last year, perhaps. He, this was on the back, I think, of a... I remember this because I was using this in class when I was teaching at uh, Nottingham Trent, where we both worked once upon a time. And uh, it was on an article he did in the New York Times where he was speaking to things like post-truth and uh, scepticism and relativism. And in, in that he was saying, again, he was iterating what he was always saying. It's like, I... I, I it was quite funny. Like it's like I never said science is bad, or I never said science is, doesn't exist, nope. or I think it's untrue, or I'm, I'm definitely not a relativist. I'd be interested to see what your th- your thoughts are on that. You know? Yeah. So this is it's very interesting if you then look at the way Latour developed in the last ten years, where he became far more outspoken in public media politically. All of so he was always accused of being apolitical, and now you know he became in the last ten years became the voice of ecological activism, and especially in France, where he continuously reminded uh, the public in his newspaper articles and whatever, that um, that people were not taking the ecological catastrophe seriously. And, um, you know, and he was accusing French politicians of being like jihadi terrorists, a long live death because of, you know, their, and it's true, right? In that sense, you can see it with, in all the countries of people who would watch this podcast, all our governments are much closer to ISIS than they are to willing to save kind of, um, I would say save the planet, but you have to qualify that. The planet will will survive, right? It's just whether or not there are humans on it and in what state these humans are living. That's the question, maybe. But it's about biodiversity. Right, right. Latour recognized this early on already when he was talking about the way in which action is always overtaken, kind of the assemblage theory to life and things like that, right? This was a very um, idea of networked life, networked being was very strong, but it was taken as a methodological approach primarily in the first 20 years of his work and only became political when he was confronted with the absolute incapacity to act on climate change, right? The the political nihilism that, that emerged from trying to persuade politicians to not pursue very short-term interests, but then you know, look at look at the next 10 years, or at least, you know, acknowledge that there is a generation for whose futures we're now making impossible. So, and that's kind of, because he used to denounce James Lovelock, and he is rightly so, and there was a paper in, um, in Reading, I believe, uh, in, in 2001, where he did a very powerful rebuttal of, Lo- of Lovelock's thesis that the only way that human life could survive on this planet was it to be reduced to 500 million. And Latour's point was, what about the other 4.5? Because at that time, the world's population was 5 billion people. What about the other 4.5 billion people? Where should they go? Right? And I think from that, 
became clear what he then later described as a matter of concern. So rather than we're looking at science and politics and all this in terms of matters of fact, we've talked about this. Let's talk about matters of concern. What And then he found Lovelock far more interesting because he could agree with Lovelock's general premises that kind of the world is a an integrated system, right? Yeah, it's a self-regulating system is Lovelock's idea, isn't it, Jim? Yeah. yeah, so everything depends on everything else. And therefore, what there was the original pragmatic idea of the Parliament of Things became kind of a, a cosmological understanding, right? It's not... It's not like, you know, trying to save democracy or whatever. It's like you're trying to to create a planetary life for as many different creatures as possible. That's kind of the decline of biodiversity's issue. And in it, humans are also allowed to live, right? That's the plan. That's the thing. And, and you can only do this. That's why I talked about earthlings, right? We're all earthlings. Not just humans are earthlings. Everything that lives on this planet is an earthling. And that is the... The critique in there is in a way, and this sounds weird. This is in a way what we could see in uh, in the Netflix film um, Don't Look Up. What were those rich, rich bastards doing, right? They were taking a wager on the future of this planet. If it worked, they were rich, even richer than they were because they were very rich. If it failed, they had their rockets ready. They could go away. And Latour argues, and this is the, the fictional part of it, which I think is rhetorically very strong, that in the 1980s, confronted with 10 years after the Club of Rome's limit to growth, the rich, some rich, let's say the uh, the Davos rich, decided that, you know, they could not afford, the planet could not afford their lifestyle. And so they had, and, and they could then do two things, say, okay, we need to curb our lifestyle. Nobody should live like us. Or we could keep our lifestyle but work on an exit plan. And so the exit plan has been trying to prolong life, right? So uh, sustaining, so this is post-human projects, sustaining life, exit strategies, space travel. Well, we know Elon Musk, Richard Branson, they're all into space travel. It's not for nothing. They already understand or they already have accepted that this planet cannot be saved. And so as, as science fiction it may sound, uh, Latour's last work actually exposes that is what we're up against. And these people that are building rockets to escape the mess they've created, probably to create another mess on another planet uh, kind of thing. These people are not our friends. They do not share our matters of concern. Right? They are hoarding up their trillions of dollars to, to found a, a, an escape strategy. And uh, this may sound, like I said, so ridiculous, but this is the practice of what they're doing. The matter of concern for them is how to escape, not how to um, uh, stop biodiversity from declining. Did you, did you, this, sorry, please continue. Sorry, please continue, Joost. But Davos, the World Economic Forum, right, they are kind of holding out to us that it will happen. You know, trust us, like with the with uh, don't look up right we'll sort this one out for you there's a technical solution just be patient to have us uh, speed dating for the uber wealthy <laughs> yeah and so um uh, uh, and that's what i hear and that's what latour heard and this is how he became radicalized politically most people get less radical when they get older and he got more radical which is interesting enough. So he does. That's one of the things I find intriguing. But he does. He does his own thing, doesn't he? You know, which is a good side of a thinker, obviously. In terms of that, you know, the ecology that he's trying to offer. You know, his constructive ecology. Is it? 
a version of that? Is it like another version of decentric human exceptionalism that we have to see ourselves as part of the broader environment, as sees ourselves as embedded in vital processes, natural processes? In uh, that he's he's doing exactly the same as so many biologists have already been doing when they were talking about biodiversity. Ah. He's not he's not doing anything radical scientifically. What he's what the biologists are saying, you know. We have to sort this out. You know, this is going bad. And, you know, we can't put everything under asphalt and concrete. We have to start kind of creating more biomass because biomass is being reduced. Um, and he's, he's their voice in a way because the, the biologists come with graphs and tables and whatever, and thick, thick books. And it's all facts. And, uh, and he says, you know, it, uh, this translates into moral responsibilities, namely, um, in the end, if we if we are really serious about human existence, we should be just as serious about fungi and trees and bees and uh, ants and all that. I see the continuity from we have never been modern to that sort of political ecology that he's trying to offer. Uh, and I think he's what he's saying is that we have to be attentive to the facts of this world. The facts that are made, as you pointed out earlier, they are only meaningful or they are a matter of concern, to use his own terminology, or their facts can only be robust, I suppose, when they are supported by a broader context of involvement or when they are broader, better institutions. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess he's a Democrat, isn't he, uh, Joost? Very much. Yeah. That's why a parliament of things. So his solution is not grab your guns and um, kill the rich or even eat the rich. Although eat the rich may actually be a ecologically sound strategy. Um, he's not saying that. So he's still still hopeful. And that may be, you know, that may be in the end, of course, um, what, what makes him pessimistic as well. But he's still hopeful that somehow a majority can be built a majority of goodwill that can redirect our redirect our, our, our work. Now, the great thing that I think in that last book that he did, or is it the New York Times article, I've forgotten, where he described first nature, second nature. We used to have a first nature, which was kind of ecological. It's what farmers understand. This is what people in the Amazon understand. They read kind of the complexity of life and interpret it and adjust their behavior accordingly. Right. Everybody does that. And then there's the second nature, which is capitalism. And he says, isn't it amazing that we think that first nature is now more amenable to change and interventions and restructuring than second nature? As soon as you raise the specter that maybe capitalism isn't sustainable, you're immediately confronted with, okay, well, that's the end of the line then, because there's only capitalism. Uh, So it's harder it's easier to talk about interventions in nature than is to, to talk about interventions in the economy. And that's, I think, a striking example of our nihilistic... Um, Proclivities, I suppose, yeah. yeah. Would you think it would be fair to classify Latour then as a realist, but an optimist? Yeah, so these these words, eh? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> when you say realism, I think of Roy Bashkar. Oh, yeah, I don't mean in the philosophical sense. I mean more in the kind of like the sort of the Machiavellian sense. Uh, he's like, you know, he rel- yeah, yeah, the pragmatist sense, exactly. Isn't he? he understands the uh, he understands what needs to be done and he understands the in, in, the perhaps insurmountable challenge and the urgency of it, of course. But he doesn't um, but he does retain hope. Yeah. So the hope is the hope is, of course, we're still alive. Right. And, and uh, you hope that you're still alive tomorrow. So every day is another chance to change the course of history now it's going to change i mean you can also be optimistic of course uh, but it depends a bit on what you expect 
come out of this. So there is, you know, it's changing already. Uh, and of course, the idea that we're all suffocating because of a lack of oxygen is not going to happen. We'll be dead well before that, because the first thing that we're going to move, what's going to happen is people are going to be put on the move. So if certain areas of this planet become uninhabitable, we've already seen that Syria, it's not just a problem of war. It's a problem of it's uninhabitable. People start moving and they start moving where Migration. it is habitable. Yeah, it's yeah. where it's habitable. And of course, you know, we now have thousands of people moving. But what about if it's millions or even billions of people moving? Then, you know, the borders won't hold. Right. That's the borders won't hold. So um, and, and that's we will have civil war. You know, we already experience that of course in ukraine so we're much more likely to kill ourselves much faster um and so this is why also it's important for latour to insist on democracy and a parliament of things right because if you keep kind of trying to make the political less violent chances are still there that you may actually also um change course without destroying everything first that might be a good place to end, Joost. Uh, I might use that as the last, uh, as the uh, as the as uh, <laughs> exit pursued by a bear, perhaps. But uh, yeah, but uh, yeah. Did you want to talk about new t- new materialism, or do you, did you have the time? Or I have a book, so I want to. No, this isn't a joke. I'm going to plug my book. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Pl- please, please do, please do, please do. I'll, I'll put I'll put a link up to it. I'll put a link it under the show Book is called show. Discussing New Materialism. It's written by or edited by Ulrike Tikva Kisman and myself, and uh, published by uh, Springer. Uh, but it's, a, it's an attempt to uh, think about not the big questions of modern and non-modern and the planetary existence, but the smaller questions. If we take new materialism seriously, does it mean we will research and analyze things differently? And I think it's half successful in the sense that we managed to have a very good alliance, I suppose, with feminism. So Karin Barat. Donna Haraway and Judith Butler in particular, who have very materialist basics for their feminist critiques, because, you know, we know the materialism, right? Criticizing kind of idealism is is an old kind of thing. But what we are less good with is the critical materialism. And so in my introduction, in my, my own work, I resort back to Marx and say, you know, you can't go, you can't just ignore historical materialism because what it does so well is it gives us kind of an imagination that would allow us to look for the traces that are not obviously there. So there is a problem a bit with old Latourianism, which is what Derrida calls the metaphysics of presence, but in a very concrete way, namely a forensic scientist on the crime scene only looks for the obvious, the the cigarette butts, the footprints, the fingerprints. But the real kind of forensic work may very well be in being open to lots of different theories at the same time. That is kind of being open to the widest and wildest. That is instead X-Files, right? Being the Muller rather than the Scully. And uh, being the Muller means you're looking for traces that are not so obvious. And and I think you need kind of a feminist perspective and a historical materialist perspective to imagine those things. And Latour in his older work was less imaginative. So he said, if it's not presenting itself, it's not there. Well, it may be there, but you may not notice it and you may not notice what it's doing, right? This is the, the problem I know from early virology. I've criticized Latour a bit in an earlier piece of work where, you know, how do people, virologists, come into being? Because there were no viruses. There was just ether. Um, and there's, you know, careful experiments where you have filters where you can show no cell 
that is supposed to be the basis of life can go through this filter, but still the disease is being transmitted, must be smaller than a cell. And this is how our conception of life changed. So you must be able to imagine, uh, as a good forensic scientist, I suppose, imagine the unimaginable as well and be open to finding these traces. So the kind of materialism that we don't want is not just um, a, a, an oligoptic empiricism, that just looks at, you know, the, through the metaphysics of presence, only that which immediately shows itself. But keep an, keep your, an open, kind of a wider open thing for stuff that may reveal itself. And it may need probing a bit with a bit of speculation. So therefore, if we approach like the vaccination debate, don't denounce everything that critics of vaccination say. Take them with you. And that's for me is kind of the principle of generalized symmetry and uh, and um, what's the called in the sociology of uh, of translation. The first principle is that of um, agnosticism. Right? Don't be too quick in siding with truth. Right? Let it be open, and and that's a kind of a materialist approach. Let the truth happen. Yeah, uh, but you need to be open to the multiplicity of possibilities that you may not know in advance, and so. What, 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 if you look at Donna Haraway's work, right? So there's a book she wrote, Simeon's Cyborg, Cyborg's mm. Women. It's a collection. What is so great about that conception of the collection is she's looking at the boundaries, right? This is the, these are the evolutionary questions. When does an ape become a man, right? When does a man become artificial intelligence? What's the difference between human intelligence and artificial intelligence? Or, you know, uh, what is a woman, right, compared to a man? And those kinds of issues, re you realize that there are no essences, there are boundary relationships that are tend to have a political a political uh, interest at heart. And so the political interests need to be part of your materialism, so to speak. So in terms of are we going to extend Latour or go beyond Latour? If we live long enough to prove Latour is right, then we can go beyond Latour. Until then, I think we should take him more seriously than that and stay with him.